Welcome to the Red Sneaker Podcast, your guide to success in the worlds of writing and publishing. Now, here's your host, best-selling author and founder of the Red Sneaker Writers Center, William Bernhardt. Hello, Red Sneaker Writers. This is episode 22, going out on July 1st, 2019. This podcast is for Red Sneaker Writers, people who are serious about having a writing career and want some practical knowledge to help them do it. My interview for this episode is with David Gogren, author of both fiction and nonfiction, including books like Let's Get Digital, an Amazon Decoded, BookBub Expert, Social Media, and Internet Book Marketing is his specialty. He's been on the podcast before. He's going to be in RiderCon at the end of August, giving not only breakout sessions, but doing a Monday masterclass on book marketing. Today, I asked him to talk about Let's Get Digital and specifically how to effectively generate word of mouth, how to get people interested in your book in the digital environment, what actually is worth doing and what's pretty much of a waste of time. I think you will find this interview extremely enlightening. But first, the news. In the news this time, we have a lot of reports coming out of one of the busiest times of year for the book world. We're just coming out of Book Expo in late May, actually, and BookCon and the New York Rights Fair which had all kinds of discussions on various book-related issues and book publishing trends. What I found most interesting is a panel on adult fiction that featured a lot of knowledgeable people, including literary agent Melissa Flashman, who has appeared at our annual Writers' Conference on several occasions. I think she knows about as much about this business as anybody out here. Here's what they were seeing as trends in the world of adult fiction. First, they talked about psychological suspense, which has been popular for several years now, basically ever since Gone Girl became probably as big a hit as anything uh, that traditional publishing has generated in the last decade or so, and that continues to be popular. What was more interesting to me was talk about the idea of having books that offer escape combined with nostalgia. Well, the escape aspect is nothing new. That's often what draws people to popular fiction, wanting to escape their real world into a more appealing world with a greater sense of closure and resolution and understandable tropes and patterns that are accompanying each genre. But here what they were specifically talking about was a nostalgia, an aching for the past felt by millennial readers, primarily women in their 20s and 30s, who some might say are too young to be experiencing nostalgia, but it's apparently a nostalgia for the world before social media seemed to dominate everything. Uh, I'd also point out that that was the dominant demographic attending BookCon this year, women, female readers in their 20s and 30s. So... If this triggers any ideas in your head as a writer, this might be something you want to consider tapping. The panelists talked about the perhaps surprising success of some bleak, darker novels, stories that do not necessarily have happy endings. But at the same time, they also emphasized the great importance of high concept, the hook, the premise, what I talk about in my book, 
uh, perfecting premise when I talk about how important it is to come up with an idea simply expressed that makes people think, hey, that sounds interesting. I want to read that book. That's, of course, way harder to come up with than to talk about it. But if you can come up with that premise, that high concept, that is a very good way to sell your book. One perhaps less welcome aspect of the panel was all of them all in agreement on the fact that authors today are more responsible than ever for marketing their books. To some extent, that's always been true, but I do think it's true now more than ever. And this panel was almost tacitly acknowledging that you cannot expect too much from your publisher, even if it's a large, big New York-based traditional publisher. They, they may do something, but truth is, although there are occasional exceptions, in most cases, it's going to be pretty by the book and not anything that's likely to cause your book to break out. If your book is going to break out, it is more likely than not going to be because of you, because of what you're doing. And even though you'd rather write than promote your book, even though you're probably an introvert who'd rather stay home and read, this is something that's essential in the modern world. And that's why people like the guy I'm interviewing in this episode, David Gogren, are so important because they can tell you how to use your time wisely so that you can do effective marketing that will actually generate sales for your book. Here's another report of interest to writers, this one coming out of the Cannes Film Festival, which we're just a few weeks away from at this point. As you can imagine, there are a lot of book people there either trying to get TV movie producers interested in their book or scouts and agents looking for good books that can be adapted. This is perhaps more prevalent than ever before in part because of all the streaming television programming going on, Netflix and Amazon Prime and similar outfits looking for books that could be turned into a cool six, eight, ten-week miniseries. This is why I invited Erin Henneke to appear at WriterCon this year. She's a very experienced TV movie book scout. She's found and sold books to Universal and Paramount and other major studios, and she'll be available at the conference to take pitches for your book. Anyway, this is what looked like the best bets or the most popular things coming out of Cannes this year. First, books based upon true stories. Well, that's probably not a newsflash. A good story is always going to be appealing to people who are looking for these kinds of video projects. The fact that It's based on a true story, even if the whole thing has been massively altered, always gives something a little bit more gravity. If you've got a good story to tell, this is a great way to tell it. Children's books were more popular than they've been in previous years, and a lot of other contemporary fiction. Anytime a book does well, and not just in traditional media, a lot of book sales are coming out of independent and self published books as well. But if you can demonstrate, Good sales, well, that just shows there's people interested in your story, which, of course, is going to increase the likelihood of an adaptation. Graphic novels were doing better than they have done in the past, and there also seems to be a resurgence of interest in historical fiction, which I think will please many of you who may be working on historical novels. Here's the bottom line, though. The book is only the first step. If you've got that high concept, the great premise, 
something of interest, something that looks like it would sustain a mini-part miniseries, that's a good start. But ultimately, you're going to need partners. You know, the nice thing about writing books is that you can do it primarily on your own, but not so any kind of television or film product. That requires partners, intermediaries, people who know the business and know how to develop these into something that will work. Again, a reason to have people like Aaron Henneke at the conference and a reason why you may find it worth your while to talk to them. The last report I want to talk about comes from Book Expo 2019, and specifically, a very interesting session that was all about NPD Book Scan, which you may know is a technology which tracks print and ebook sales units in the traditional publishing sector. And I want to emphasize that last part because this is based upon books that are scanned. So that's only going to be tracking point of sale data at brick and mortar retailers like Barnes and Noble or independent bookstores. Amazon only to the extent that the books are sold in their handful so far of brick and mortar stores. And they try to incorporate ebook sales as well, but primarily relying on data provided by publishing companies. Keep that in the back of your mind when you're listening to these statistics I'm about to give you. For instance, it appears that so far this year, overall, U.S. book sales are down about 2%. Well, that's probably not a huge surprise, nor is it a, I mean, everybody would rather see sales go up than down, but that's probably not a huge surprise. If Amazon sales were in this mix, it might be different. But we haven't really had a big blockbuster breakout book yet. If that happens in the last part of the year, that number could change. NPD BookScan also indicates that the ebook market is declining and has every year since 2014. But again, that's just for traditional publishers. If Amazon's ebook sales were included, I know that story would be very different. We've talked on this podcast before about how many traditional publishers are intentionally hiking up the price of their ebooks. In many cases, more than the uh, the simultaneously released trade or even hardcover book, they're wanting the ebook market to decline. So this is self-fulfilling prophecy. Clearly, some of these large traditional publishers think their survival is tied to print and traditional brick-and-mortar bookstores. So, uh, you know, they kind of wish the whole ebook thing would just go away. Nonfiction, continuing the trend from last year, is still selling better than fiction. But last year, remember, that was primarily driven by a lot of political books, a lot of books about President Trump and, of course, Michelle Obama's autobiography, which became the best-selling book of the year. Political book sales this year are down, but I don't know if that really indicates a trend or it's just that there haven't been any big political books. Everybody got Trump out of their system and, and President Obama's book hasn't come out yet. If it did, that could also turn around very quickly. In traditional publishing, the fictional genre that is seeing the most growth is suspense thrillers. My wheelhouse. But even then, the increase is only about 1%, so I wouldn't put too much stock into that. The young adult categories that are doing best are nonfiction books. Still targeted toward young people, but books about sports and famous historical figures and history and whatnot. 
overall, I don't think there's anything that is really gigantically significant here or any big news flash. But the bottom line is probably that the print market, even for traditional publishers, is starting to decline and possibly will continue in the future. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't get involved in traditional publishing. If that's what you want, uh, that's what you should do. But you should understand that that's not the only game in town. And the future, of course, the future is always uncertain, right? Here's what's for sure. The best way to have a success is to write a really good book. And secondarily, no matter which direction you go in publishing, to understand that you are going to have to be involved in marketing. But you want to do that intelligently, which is my segue into the next section on writing tips. In this segment, I want to talk about the noteworthy case of Kathleen Hale. Some of you may recognize that name. Her debut novel, No One Else Can Have You, came out a few years ago. It was a young adult book, but controversial, kind of a dark comedy that included references to a lot of serious topics, murder and abuse. It received mixed reviews, as, you know, most books do. But what she particularly liked, disliked rather, was a review that came from a woman publishing under the name of Blythe Harris, who is a very prominent book blogger and reviewer on Goodreads. She gave it a one-star review and said not only that she thought it was poorly written and offensive, but that she encouraged other people not to read it. Well, the author of the book understandably didn't take this very well, wasn't very happy about it. She began to not only disagree vocally online, but also to investigate this reviewer. Turns out, she wasn't reviewing under her real name. The picture that she posted was uh, with her reviews was originally not actually a picture of herself. She was, to use uh, contemporary terms, a catfish reviewer, or at least that's what Hale alleged. And she thought that invalidated the review. Most of Goodreads disagreed. They didn't like this at all. They didn't like the idea of people challenging their right to freely say whatever they want about any book they're reviewing. People started calling her a stalker because she was investigating the reviewer. Readers should be free to say whatever they want about a book. And basically, the whole thing backfired on Hale in a big way. She's got a new book out now, but she is still dealing with this Goodreads problem from the past. I bet you already know where I'm going with this because it's consonant with some of what I've said in the past. Yes, you need to be active online, social media, digital marketing of your books, but don't talk back to reviewers. It is such a waste of breath. Here's the reality. Not everyone is going to love your book. I don't care how good it is, not everybody is going to like it. Not everybody liked Gone with the Wind. Not everybody liked My Fair Lady or E.T. There is no universal love for anything because every book reader is different. Focus on the good, because here's the thing. If you've done a good job, you've written your book well, put a lot of time and energy into what David Gogren calls landing the plane, creating a satisfying story, 
then many, I would even be willing to say most of your readers will be pleased, and you just forget about the rest. I remember when my first book came out, so I'm completely sympathetic to what Hale did here, although I think it was a mistake, but I understand. I remember when my first book, Primary Justice, came out way long ago, and the reviews were so, so good for weeks and weeks, and then finally I saw a bad one, and I was outraged. Do you not know what everybody else is saying? This is a good book. I even ended up writing the reviewer a letter, which, of course, he never applied to. Why would he? I'm sure he just scoffed and threw it in the trash. And in retrospect, that seems so amateurville. I'm just embarrassed even talking about it. Don't do that. Understand up front that not all of your reviews will be good. There will always be outliers and live with it. Even if you look at the Amazon pages for the most successful authors out there, anybody who's got more than a dozen or so reviews is not going to have a perfect 5.0 rating. It's going to be probably somewhere in the mid-30s because there is always going to be a mix of opinions. That's just the way it is. Sometime you want to laugh, go go to, I wrote a, a children's biography a few years back as part of the Oklahoma Centennial Project. It's about Ada Lois Sipuel. And I think this was the first review on the page. Anyway, it was still there last time I looked. A reviewer said, I didn't mean to buy this book. I bought it by accident, so I didn't read it. One star. I mean, so of course that drags the whole average down. Here's a one star review from somebody who admits that she did not review, didn't read the book because she didn't want it in the first place. What can you do about that? Nothing except maybe laugh and accept that this is part of the book world and get back to your work. There will always be people like that. It's part of the deal. It's part of what you signed on for when you decided you wanted to be a writer. Don't try and strike back. Don't lash back. Be cool. Be Spock, not McCoy. Stay above the fray, and in the long run, you will be much better off. Instead, focus on landing that plane. Read those Red Sneaker Writer books. Write the best kind of book you possibly can. And if you do that, I believe that you will be very satisfied with the response you get most of the time. My interview for this episode is with David Gogren, author of both fiction and nonfiction, whose books like Let's Get Digital have transformed the way people have thought about online marketing for the better. In this interview, I asked him to talk about how authors can effectively generate word of mouth, get people talking about and interested in their books online, what works and what really doesn't. Here's what he had to say. Dave, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. All right. If you could give one piece of advice to an aspiring writer, what would it be? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I, I, if I think back to myself when I was um, trying to break into the business, I think I think this problem is, is one that's faced by a lot of authors, which is not, exa- not exactly knowing where they fit in the market, you know, where they would be shelved is, is the way we used to phrase it. Um, so I think it's important to know where your book is going to end up. And, and, you know, I think newer authors especially have trouble with this idea because they kind of think, well, I don't want to sell out or I want to write the books I want to write. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of got to meet the market and meet the readers halfway um, and try and 
try and wrestle your creativity into into a kind of a, a familiar form for readers. And I think, you know, when we start out as, as artists or creatives, we, we kind of rebel against any kind of strictures. But sometimes when you take something, like if you want to do, you know, a classic detective story or, or a historical romance or whatever it is, there are certain genre conventions there that you have to respect or readers won't enjoy your book. Sure. And I think we find them very limiting at the start. But I think it's as we get more and more experience, as we write more books, that we kind of respect these kind of strictures a little more and realize there's a lot more we can do within that within that space. So sure. I would say, you know, go to your local bookstore, look at the shelves, imagine where your book will go. Um, also look at Amazon, look at, look at the subcategories in the Kindle store and try and imagine where your book will fit. And then, you know, start looking at things like how the book is presented, what kind of tropes the writer uses um, and the way, they, the way they sell their book to readers because you're going to have to learn how to, how to talk to readers as well. Yes, and that's the most challenging part for many writers, including sometimes myself. Uh, what I, and that's so dead on target talking about genre conventions. But uh, to me, those conventions give you the framework within which you can be very creative. Yeah, I, I remember reading a book a long time ago. Um, I think it was the follow up to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I think it was called Leela. Uh. And at, at this stage, the, the protagonist is is teaching creative writing somewhere and he has a class. It's a very basic creative writing class. And he he tells people just to write a thousand words on their hometown. And someone, you know, comes to his office and says, you know, I can't do it. I'm, I'm totally blocked up. And so he asks the guy, well, where do you live? And he, he describes where he lives. And he says, well, I know that town, you know, the big library on the main street. And he's like, yeah, well, write a thousand words about that building. And the guy comes back a day later and he couldn't do it. He was all blocked up. So the guy goes, okay, well, you know, the big heavy door and, you know, there's this big brass, <laughs> brass knocker on the door. And just to the right of that, there's an, there's an oddly colored brick. It doesn't fit in with the rest of the building. Write a thousand words about that. And the guy came back with, you know, 6,000 words on this brick. So sometimes I think when we actually put strictures on ourselves, that can often lead to like a, just an outpouring of creativity. You know, sometimes the, the blank page can be, right. can be terrifying when you, when you have that supposed freedom to go in all directions, it can actually end up blocking you up. Right. I think that's really insightful. Uh, I wanted to talk, if we can, Dave, about your book, Let's Get Digital, because I think that's one of the most invaluable books anybody's put out in a long time. And I, I particularly like when you're talking about strategies, kind of like you were just saying, okay, you've written the book. Where do I fit? What are the strategies that I can use uh, to sell more books? So should I give that to you as the broad question or should I focus it <laughs> to make it more answerable? What are the strategies that help sell more books? Well, I think, um, you know, we can we can go down that rabbit hole forever. But just to make it really simple to start off with, um, the only thing that has ever really sold books is is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, people get all kind of worried about various things that they might have to do to sell their book, like like one of the main reasons when I when I talk to to authors about, you know, what they want to do with their career or whether they're interested in self-publishing or whether they're afraid of it for whatever reason. One of the big things that always comes up is that they have this really kind of cliched view of marketing that, you know, they'll have to, you know, don the pimp suit and go around like screaming on Twitter, telling people to buy their book. Right. And. You know, they're right to be afraid of that because the people who do that end up looking stupid and they don't end up selling books because that doesn't sell books. Mm -hmm. um, what I like to do is try and um, 
position the book correctly in the marketplace, make it more discoverable to readers and basically give readers the tools to share information about your book. And not just readers, like it's not just readers these days that we get a recommendation from. We also get recommendations from things like Amazon or or, or sites like BookBub. Um, and there's all sorts of ways that you can make sure that your book is in that conversation and getting recommended. So I, th- I would suggest that most beginning authors um, or those who, who perhaps have been traditionally published and are now looking at self-publishing or just looking at taking more control of the marketing themselves, mm-hmm. they probably need to unlearn a lot of the things they think they know about marketing. Um, I, I would even go as far to, as to suggest that if you don't enjoy marketing, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Yeah, it, it seems like it's still word of mouth. It's just uh, more digital word of mouth now than people huddled around the water cooler or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's important to think that you don't just get recommendations from from other people. Sometimes it's an Amazon algorithm which is powering that recommendation. Sometimes it's a it's a critic in the newspapers, and actually. These days, it's more likely to be a recommendation that arrives on your phone or or in your email account than than one you're actually getting, you know, in the workplace or from a from from a, a newspaper. So, where's the best place for somebody to start when they're trying to boost their sales? Should they blog? Should they bury themselves in social media? What do you think? Well, I think you know there's been a lot of bad advice given, um, and a lot of it, quite frankly, is coming from from agents and editors perhaps who are going to get that ambushed with that question at conferences sometimes and they don't really know what to say because they're not actively involved in the front lines like self-publishers are in in trying to market their work um it's the booksellers that traditionally have marketed the work for them so they usually give out these answers like you know build up your platform have you know five thousand likes on your facebook page or five thousand twitter followers and these things don't really help to sell books mm-hmm. i'd say the only the only part of an author platform which is a must and which actually is extremely effective at selling books is a mailing list and mm-hmm. i think everyone should have a, a mailing list everyone should start one today you know if they don't have one already even if they haven't published anything yet i think you should start a mailing list um, sure. it's something that is going to be um so useful to you uh, throughout your career. And, you know, a lot of people are worried about changes. They're looking at Barnes and Noble and wondering if it's going to go down in the next mm-hmm. year. They're worried about, you know, Amazon having too much dominance or what happens if Amazon then eventually goes belly up like all companies do eventually. Uh, or what happens if one of the big publishers merges with a, yet another one and they're not taking on as many books. There's all these worries constantly in, in the world of publishing. And it's sometimes it feels like your career can be quite fragile or it's subject to forces outside of your control. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing I'd say is the very best insurance policy against anything bad happening in the future is to have a mailing list. Mm-hmm. So like even if Facebook goes down tomorrow and all those likes that you've cultivated disappear or Twitter or whatever else, like happened with MySpace, this is the, the cycle all companies go through. Um, the best insurance policy is to have a list of emails of, of your readers and you can take that anywhere. You can do anything with that. And it doesn't matter if all the retailers disappear tomorrow. If you have a mailing list of several thousand of your readers on it, that is something that you can live off. That sounds great. But of course, I know people are asking themselves, okay, but how do I get names on that list? Or more accurately, how do I get email addresses on that mailing list? Where do you find those people? Well, I I think, you know, actually the best way to collect email addresses is passively. You know, there's a lot of people 
um, will engage in very aggressive means to build up their mailing list because um, sales publishers especially understand the power of having a big mailing list. Um, but actually, I think the most the most effective way is just to be smart about how you're passively collecting them. So the number one thing you should have um, at the back of all your books is, and it should be the first thing that a reader sees when they finish your book, because I, I think, you know, if you've done your job with the story, if you've landed the plane, you know, successfully, mm-hmm. um, the reader that I call that peak reader love moment, because the reader, you know, at that moment, you've, you've done your job. Um, you've tied up all the loose ends in the story. You've ended it in a satisfactory way. The reader's going to want to know more straight away. Like they, their opinion of you will never be higher than it is just after the end. So that is the perfect moment to ask them for something. And in this case, to ask them for a sign up to your mailing list. Um, I think, you know, you can also collect them passively via your website. And that's very important to do as well. Um, but there are ways that you can, there's, well, there's two main ways that you can really kind of boost that because, you know, if your book isn't selling, no one is going to be getting to the end and feeling happy about the story and signing up to your list. Right. So, so boosting your sales always has a big knock-on effect on signups to your mailing list. Now, not everyone's going to sign up to your list. Like, mm-hmm. like less than ten percent of people that read your book might sign up to your list, but that's okay. Like, that's a number that will keep growing all the time. Mm-hmm. So, every time you have another promotion, every time you launch another book, that that the that book will go higher and higher in the charts because you've got a larger number of people that you're telling about it during launch week. Um, but you can do a couple of things without being too aggressive to increase signups. So like a very popular strategy is just to add, uh, just to dangle something as an incentive for people to sign up to your list. Um, you can give away a book, but obviously you might want to give away a whole book, especially if you're starting out, you won't have too many books that are of publishable quality, but mm-hmm. you can give away a short story. A lot of, a lot of authors do that. And um, it's, it's especially effective if, if for example, you have, you know, you're writing a series and you have a recurring main character. If you have some kind of spin-off story with a secondary character that readers enjoy, you know, that's a perfect one for like a 10,000 word story or even 5,000 words you can get away with. But even if you don't have a short story or a novella or something else like that, that you can offer readers, um, just try and be a little bit creative. Think of like a DVD and, and all the bonus extras on it. Um, Mm And there was all sorts of things that fans will enjoy that that they'll want to know more about. Like, I think there was one one thriller author who gave away case files. You know, he just made up these kind of case files. And, and, you know, that's for that genre that that's that's an amazing uh, hook for a reader. They're they're totally going to want to want to want to want to get their hands on that. So they're happy to give you their email address. No, that's brilliant. Like. Yeah, there, there is very simple strategies like that. Like there, there are other things you can engage in uh, when you're a bit further down the line to, to boost that further, like advertising and things like that. But you know, these things don't really cost that much money or that much time and effort. And they can be passively collecting um, signups for you in the background. Just, just try and think about um, how you present that information at the end of the book that, you know, the best place to ask for it is, is straight away. You don't want to buried after an eight page author's note or where you thank your, your dog walker for, <laughs> for, for getting the chihuahua out of the house right. for eight hours a day. You know, you can do that stuff afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've got to think about the end matter of your book. You know, um, I think self-publishers spend a lot of time thinking about both the front matter and the end matter of the book. Like if you open a typical book from a, a large publisher, there'll be pages and pages of stuff at the start of the book. There might be a family tree. There might be a map. There might be, you know, several pages of title information and copyright pages and a dedication. There might be a list of 
books, other titles by the author or by the by the publisher. There could be sometimes there's 15 or 20 pages of stuff before the story starts. Mm-hmm. Now, with an ebook, you really don't want to do that. You right. want to either limit, eliminate that stuff altogether or move it to the back of the book. You want people getting into your story straight away. But also the, the end of the book is important because, you know, as I said, you know, readers are going to have be very favorably disposed to you when they finish your book, presuming you didn't make a mess of the story. Um, so that's the time to ask them for things. And you want to get that out of the way right at the start. You want to say something like, hey, if you enjoyed this book, the adventures continue in book two, which comes out in the fall. Sign up here to get an email as soon as it's released. You know, something mm-hmm. Sim- mm-hmm. simple like that. And then that's the time to also maybe ask them for a like on your Facebook page or to give them your website address or to tell them, you know, there is three. There is a whole other series featuring a different character set in the same town. And you might want to check it out. Mm-hmm. There's a feeling out there, I know, that it's easier to do this kind of uh, targeted marketing and collecting mailing lists and whatnot. It's easier to do for nonfiction than fiction. But I know a lot of the people listening to this podcast write fiction. you have any special or particular tips for fiction writers? I, I actually don't think it's, it's, it's that different for fiction. Um, I think nonfiction authors generally, when it comes to marketing and finding readers, have a little bit of an advantage in that, you know, most nonfiction books are solving a problem of one kind or another. Um, even if that problem is, you know, to get more information on a topic. Um, and so all you need to do in marketing in general terms is to find someone with that problem. Now, fiction, the readers are a bit more scattered and it's a bit harder to find them. But generally, the niches are are so much bigger. Um, so, you know, while it might be a little bit easier to get someone to sign up to your mailing list, if you if you're a nonfiction author and you're able to find that community of people interested in that topic or with that problem, with fiction, the numbers can just go so much higher. And that goes for any kind of promotional tactic, whether it's ads that you're running um, on reader sites or on somewhere like Facebook or on somewhere like Amazon, or, you know, just just simply how big can you grow your mailing list? I think the the ceiling on that is much higher in romance than it is in, you know, mm-hmm. a, a series of books on learning the guitar or something. Right, right. All right. One last question. This is one of the burning issues of our day. What are your thoughts about going wide? Good idea, bad idea, stick with Amazon. What do you recommend? Well, I know people have very strong feelings about this. Yeah. And some some people will be just super hard-nosed about it and they'll be like, um, I'm going to follow the money and whatever makes me the most money. And I, I can't argue with that. We all have to put food on the table. Some people uh, will be very principled about it. They will say, I feel very strongly that my book should be available everywhere. That's just something emotionally important to me. And if you feel that way, don't fight it. You know, if you're going to be miserable making your books exclusive, like, cause you will experience things like, um, like I've, I've experimented with being exclusive with Amazon. And when you get an email from somebody saying, Hey, I bought your last book on, on Barnes and Noble. And I see this one's not available. Thanks a lot. Like that's, that's not nice, you know, and there's no good way to handle that really. Like you can maybe give them a free book or whatever, but you know, even, even if you do turn that reader relationship around, there's probably 10 more who didn't bother emailing you, you know, that are disappointed. So Mm -hmm. that goes with the territory of being exclusive to Amazon. Mm -hmm. There are advantages, of course, you know, it's, it's just easier when you're only publishing in one place. Sure. There are various things that Amazon dangles to try and convince us to sign up. And sometimes they're worth it. Sometimes they're not, but I'm generally agnostic towards it. I will kind of, you know, if it works for my books, I'll put them in. Um, if it doesn't, I'll take them out. And if it's any way a tie, I'll leave them wide just because I don't like 
I like being everywhere I can be, you know, but there are certain genres like, like space opera, military science fiction. You look at the top hundred on Amazon, 90, 95 of those hundred books will be Kindle unlimited books on any given day. Mm -hmm. So if you're writing in those niches, it's going to be very difficult for you. It's not impossible. I know authors who write space opera and they're wide and they make it work, but it is going to be harder, especially on Amazon to get any kind of visibility, to get any kind of, um, you know, to hit the charts on Amazon. It's going to be difficult. But then in, in other genres, you look at something like, I don't know, historical fiction, for example. Um, Kindle Unlimited hasn't really, like if you look at the top 100, not too many of the books will be, will be Kindle Unlimited. So then in, if you're working in that genre, there seems like less of a cost for, for staying out of Kindle Unlimited. So uh, while I wouldn't exclusively decide based on your, your genre or niche, I, I would let that be, a, you know, I would let that lead you to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And certainly if you're not sure which way to go, that's a good way of tie-breaking it maybe. Mm, that's a great, great advice. Dave, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to David for sharing his considerable wisdom with the rest of us. And speaking of David, let me just remind you again that he is one of the featured presenters at WriterCon this year. If you would like to take this opportunity to ramp up your writing career, to get the information you need, not only about how to write well, but how to market it effectively, come join us in Oklahoma City over Labor Day weekend. You can get all the information you want about this conference at writercon.org, W-R-I-T-E-R dot O-R-G. But if that leaves you with questions about the conference, just write me. I'll tell you once again, my email address is willburn at gmail.com. That is W-I-L-L-B-E-R-N at gmail.com. And if you'll allow me one personal note, my new novel, Court of Killers, goes on pre-sale this week. It's the second Daniel Pike novel. So if you read the first one, if you didn't, what's the deal? Go get The Last Chance Lawyer. But if you did read it and you're ready for the next one, later this week you'll be able to go onto Amazon or whatever is your favorite retailer and pre-order Court of Killers. Be the first kid on your block to stay on top of what's going on with Daniel Pike. Until next time, keep writing. And remember, you cannot fail if you refuse to quit.